The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm alright, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sam. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Ladies and gentlemen, in Philip Rapp's creation, the Bickersons. What's what's the matter? All right, all right, Blanche, Blanche. I'm putting a ribbon in my hair. Where are you going? I'm not going anywhere. I just thought I'd like to look nice this morning. Why? I knew you'd forget. You don't even know what day this is. I do, too. It's rent day. It is not. Today happens to be our wedding anniversary. Well, I knew it was a sad occasion of some kind. What kind of a remark is that? That's supposed to be funny. No, it isn't supposed to be funny, Blanche. I'm just groggy, that's all. I'm sorry. I knew you'd forget. I didn't forget it. So why didn't you say something? Blanche, I just opened my eyes. You forgot it. I tell you, I didn't forget it. But even if I did, you'd remind me of it. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Is that all? No plans? We've been married eight years. Don't you want to do something? No, it's too late to do anything. It's sad about you. How you suffer. I didn't get such a bargain, you know. Okay, okay. There's better fish in the ocean than the one I caught. There's better bait, too. I'm serious. Okay, I'm sorry. You hack away at me in the morning and I'm so exhausted, I don't know what I'm saying. You wouldn't be so exhausted if you went to bed at a reasonable hour. I had to work overtime. Pour me some coffee. Get paid? I'll get paid. What time did you get home? 12.30. If you got home at 12.30, why were you so long getting into bed? I know for a fact you didn't come to bed until almost 2. I was in the kitchen putting the stuff away. What stuff? What's the matter, Blanche? You told me to bring stuff home for the party tonight. You invited a lot of your crumb friends and you told me to bring stuff, so I brought stuff. Did you bring the potatoes for the potato 
salad. I brought potatoes. Did you pare them? I pared them. All of them? All except one. He had a big knob on top, and I couldn't find a mate for him. I meant... I know what you meant, Blanche. I even boiled them last night. Where are my pants? Who stole my pants? Nobody stole your pants. I just looked in the wastebasket, and they're not there. My shoes are missing from the sink. Don't be silly, John. Your pants are on a hanger in the closet, and your shoes are in the shoe rack. How'd they get there? I put them there. Well, I wish you'd quit throwing my things around like that. (laughs) Gotta get them or I'll be late. You won't be late. Here are your pants. Thanks. Blanche, these aren't my pants. They're not? Then whose pants are they? That's a good question, only I should be asking. Don't be so snobby. They were baggy, so I pressed them. Baggy? Took me an hour to find the right crease. Be careful you don't wrinkle them now. What's the difference? I like my pants to look lived in. You're dragging the tops on the floor. Hold your trouser leg with your left hand, then step in with your right foot. Blanche, I've been putting on my own pants for over 40 years, and I don't need you to be the foreman of it. Which one? It doesn't matter. I want to use it for a belt. My suspenders are broken. Why don't you wear your belt? I'm using it to keep the soles from falling off my shoes. John Fitterson, you know you're just... I know it. I know I haven't got a belt. Where's my shirt? Where did you hide my shirt? I didn't hide it anywhere. Well, where is it? I draped it around the canary's cage so he could sleep. Is my shirt the only rag you could find to cover the bird's cage with? Hasn't hurt anything, has it? No, but I don't like the way that bird pokes into my pockets. Every time I take a cigarette out, I'm smoking bird seed. Why do you have to cover the cage anyway? The canary is sensitive to light. Well, get him a pair of sunglasses. Leave my shirt alone. No bird's going to sleep later than I do. Ah, shut up. John, why must you be so mean on our anniversary? Lanch, I'm not mean. I'm worried. Business is bad. My job is hanging by a thread. You never should have quit your other job. You made me quit. You said it wasn't dignified selling bowling balls. You were embarrassed to answer when people asked you what your husband sold. Well, it sounded like it was trying to start a fight. That's no problem for you. I gotta go. Here, and don't forget your samples. I won't forget. This darn vacuum cleaner gets heavier every day. Straighten this hose around my neck, will you, Blanche? There, there. Now, got everything? I think so. No, wait a minute. You got any money? Well, there's 50 cents in the sugar bowl. 50 cents? You can bring me the change when you come home. Now listen, Blanche, something's got to be done about this. I can't go down to work like a pauper every day. A man's got to have a couple dollars in his pocket. Now don't yell at me. I don't mind going with torn clothes and holes in my socks, but I'm not going to suffer through those lunches anymore. What's the matter with your lunches? You ought to know. You pack them for me. I'm just getting sick of carrying my lunch to work in a paper sack. Why can't I go to the restaurant like the other fellas? John, what are you talking about? I haven't fixed your lunch for two years. Oh, Blanche, every morning of my life I find my lunch wrapped in brown paper on the side of the sink. John, that's the garbage. Goodbye, Blanche. Goodbye, dear. Happy anniversary. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, my guest this hour is uh, 
legal uh, is uh, a professor of law at the University of Houston Law Center. She's uh, written a new book called Shortlisted that uh, explores women in the shadows of the Supreme Court. Her name is her name is Renee Kanake Jefferson. Am I getting that right, Renee? That's perfect. Yes, thank you. Let me let me ask first, just to to get things rolling. Um, in the book shortlisted, what do we mean when we say shortlisted? Is there a difference between being on the shortlist and being shortlisted? Well, yeah, and it, I have to tell you, it's not <laughs> something that when we wrote this book, we set out to find necessarily. So, this project began as kind of a a mystery, trying to unpack how many women had been considered for the. U.S. Supreme Court before Sandra Day O'Connor, of course, became the first in 1981. And we found out that there were nine. What was interesting in learning about their various candidacies is that as they were placed on a president's shortlist, sometimes they ended up shortlisted in a negative way in the sense that they appeared on the list so that the president could claim to care about diversity and equality and women, but they weren't selected and the president would preserve the status quo of an all-white male Supreme Court. And so that's when we sort of coined this phrase of being shortlisted, because we notice this is a phenomenon that doesn't just happen on the U.S. Supreme Court, but it unfortunately happens in lots of areas of professional life over and over again. And and it doesn't just it doesn't just happen to women. It's not just a gender thing. It happens along racial lines and, and of course, uh, uh, political lines and, and so on. But one of the things that I found really interesting is how far back women were considered for the Supreme Court. Um, and, and I'm fascinated by the fact that there have been women who've held elected offices even before women had the right to vote. Is that is that true as well about uh, being on a shortlist for the for the Supreme Court? Well, so the first woman shortlisted by a president officially for the Supreme Court was Florence Allen, and that was by FDR in the 1930s. Although her name was mentioned even before uh, FDR shortlisted, or also by President Hoover, so she would have certainly been the earliest. And she she ends up coming into prominence because of women seeking the right to vote. She was a huge champion for women's suffrage in her home state of Ohio. And after securing the right to vote for women, she went out and asked for their vote and was the first woman elected to the Supreme Court of Ohio. From there, FDR did not just shortlist her, but also select her for the Sixth Circuit Federal Court of Appeals. And then she, of course, was ultimately shortlisted for the U.S. Supreme Court, but that's where she remained. She was not placed on the court. Imagine um, how different life might have looked for women professionally if there had been such a, a prominent figure, a female, on the U.S. Supreme Court back in the 1930s. It's um, interesting, this, this notion of uh, the shortlist and shortlisting. In your research, did you find that, um, generally speaking, there was a nominee already in mind? Or were people on the short list, did they all have an equal shot at it um, when the list was formed? 
So it very much depended president to president. Um, LBJ in particular was sort of known as having friends in mind that he, he wanted, even though he did have a woman on his short list. He was the second, uh, um, and that was, uh, Soya Menchikoff was the second woman to be officially shortlisted. She was the first law professor at Harvard Law School and the University of Chicago, first female dean at the University of Miami, first female reporter for an organization called the American Law Institute. Well, um, most most people haven't necessarily heard of the American Law Institute. Everyone has entered into a contract, and she was the legal figurehead who helped to develop early contract law. So um, in that instance, I, I don't know. I, I think the advisors took her very seriously to the president, but I don't think that LBJ did. In other instances, though, I think um, presidents were putting together shortlists and didn't necessarily have a particular person in mind yet. I mean, that's definitely true of Nixon, and in part because he had failed nominations. And But even with Nixon not necessarily having a particular individual slated uh, the whole time as he was considering vacancies, he definitely was not going to put a woman on the court, even though he was very happy to have it publicly known that he was considering women. He put his shortlist out to the media and made sure everyone knew it had two women on it, Sylvia Bacon and Mildred Lilly. But I've listened to the tapes of his Oval Office conversations, and I can tell you that behind closed doors he said things like, I don't even think women should be allowed to vote. <laughs> but he, he, want, he, he wanted their vote, though, right? So he's sort of the, the you know, most egregious and obvious offender of, of the shortlisting phenomena in that he's very much, for political reasons, putting women's names on the list. And they were absolutely qualified, but he had no intention of placing them on the court. He just you know, sort of wanted to have it both ways. He could claim to care about diversity and women's issues to garner their vote, but also preserve the all-male status quo that, frankly, the justices on the court at the time very much wanted to maintain. They did not want a woman joining them. Um, have you, uh, in in the research, did you get a sense for when or if it the short list has always been leaked for reasons of sending a nod to various uh, interest groups and voting blocks? So that's different as well. And I mean, the, our, the current president, President Trump, you can go on WhiteHouse.gov, the website, and see his shortlist. You know, he, he ran on a shortlist, which was a pretty long shortlist, and it got even longer once he was elected. <laughs> He's the first president to be so public about it, um, although not the first president to run on campaign promises involving who would be placed on the court. President Reagan absolutely ran on that campaign promise. He said he would put a woman on the Supreme Court, and, of course, he fulfilled it. What's interesting to me about uh, Reagan is he had the opportunity to put more justices on the court, but he checked the woman box by placing Sandra Day O'Connor there and then did not appoint any other women to the U.S. Supreme Court and very few to the lower courts, for that matter. That's not in any way to diminish Sandra Day O'Connor. I mean, phenomenal Supreme Court justice, but what that did do is to her is place a lot of pressure as being the only woman. In fact, in an interview, she said, "You know, I'm, I'm, you know, honored to be the first, but I don't want to be the last." And she was always afraid of making some sort of mistake that all women would then be judged for. More about women in the shadows of the Supreme Court from the book shortlisted by author Renee Kanake Jefferson is straight ahead. Everybody's doing. 
it on Brand New Dance Now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place 
with magical charms indoors 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 take it away hi this is deb cherry genesee county treasurer and you're listening to the tom sumner radio show More about women in the shadows of the Supreme Court from the book shortlisted by author Renee Kanake Jefferson is straight ahead. How many women are sitting on the the Supreme Court currently? So currently there are three, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Elena Kagan, and Sonia Sotomayor. I, I I couldn't remember if there was a fourth. I, I, I kind of remembered those three. Of course, everybody knows that the notorious RBG, but... Uh, well, and the fourth was Sandra Day O'Connor, but she is retired. Okay, so. that's, that's why I was a little confused. Um, yeah, no, but think about that. In the whole history of the U.S. Supreme Court, we've had only four women and there's you know um 114 justices I mean, the women are like you know three percent maybe a little bit less of all justices over time so on the one hand it's wonderful that we have not just one not just two but three women sitting on the court today but if you look at the history of the makeup of the court we have a long way to go but that's but that's true of of um heads of fortune 500 companies and uh, you know other high profile you know cabinet members and uh, you know members of congress and the senate and and state houses and and legislatures around the country uh, my question is and, and you you said something that was very interesting about imagine if we'd had a woman on the supreme court in the 30s if that you know how that would have changed things do you think, looking back at the history, that this evolution on the Supreme Court is about where women are evolving since the since suffrage and uh, over time in across all these different uh, disciplines? Yeah, I, I think that's that's right. There's sort of a symbolic uh, uh, impact here on that, and certainly. Uh, by 1981, women were much more prominent in professional life, and you know, so that's when Reagan is thinking, like, yes, it's you know time to place a woman on the court. And you're you're absolutely right to to note that there's a similar gender inequality among positions of leadership and power in in any field. I mean, this isn't just something uh, that the Supreme Court is grappling with, and so the stories that we tell of these women's lives in the shortlisted book, I mean, in one respect, it's very much a a history that needs to be told as a part of our country's history. But their strategies, the way they navigated their professional life in a world that was largely excluded to women, those are things that apply to anyone, whether you want to be a Supreme Court justice or you want to pursue any sort of leadership role in whatever professional life. And so there's definitely a much broader application. And I would note, you know, we, um, we still haven't had a female president. We still haven't had a female chief justice of the Supreme Court. And so there are still professional roles in our nation that are completely excluded to women, or, or at least have been and continue to be. But there, there are sort of two things that that fascinate me about this book. You know, at, at on on the face of it, and one is 
this idea that women weren't even taken very seriously in the workplace until after World War II. So it's been a fairly short time, and and there's there's been this this big move forward since then. Um, and, and and the other thing is, it really puts a spotlight on the significance of those very early women who were reaching the point where they could make a short list. No, I think that's right. I mean, it it it, it just goes to show they had to do so much more. Um, I mean, in, in in some cases, literally get the configuration of buildings changed so that they could work in them. When Florence Allen went to the court, there wasn't a bathroom available for her. They had to build one. Um, when when her colleagues went dining for lunch, she wasn't allowed to attend because they went to an all-male dining club. So she would eat lunch in her office, and she had a hot plate. And this was when she was on the um, Sixth Circuit Federal Court of Appeals. When she retires... Another woman who's in our shortlisted study, Cornelia Kennedy, uh, a Michigan judge, she ends up going on to the Sixth Circuit. Florence Allen passed on her hot plate to her as, you know, sort of a rite of passage, but also so that she'd have a way to eat lunch. Now, of course, by the time Cornelia Kennedy's on the court, eventually her male colleagues decide, you know, we're going to refuse to continue to dine at this all-male lunch facility unless they allow Judge Kennedy to join us. And and in short order, they did. So there was this sort of, you know, progression. But but still, really, um, I think, you know, it's 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 one story, but it, it shows you how vividly professional life was excluded to women if there wasn't a place for a woman to use the bathroom or a way that she could join in with colleagues over over lunch, where. Um, we all know a lot of business transpires usually over those sort of casual interactions, right? Oh, yeah. Um, fortunes are made and lost in, over some of those lunches. Um, yeah, exactly. And, 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 and these, you know, these that's women have to sort of carve these strange paths in. That's so funny, Renee, because, you know, until you just mentioned it, and, and I don't know what to make of this, I had completely forgotten that there were male-only dining clubs. Oh, yeah. I know. I, you know, I remember them being racially discriminatory. And, and you know, I remember private clubs. Uh, wasn't it Groucho Marx who famously said, I wouldn't join a club that would have me as a member? Uh, right. be- because of, of uh, you know, rules that, you know, Jews couldn't join certain clubs, golf clubs and so on. Mm-hmm. I had completely mm-hmm. forgotten about that. And, and I don't know what that says. If it says that, you know, my mind is going, or things are really getting that much better? Well, so I think there's a couple things going on. On the one hand, there's been, you know, definite improvement for women being able to enter professional life. We don't have the same sort of, you know, blatant outward discrimination. All of the women in the city, and they, they couldn't be more different in terms of their political perspectives and the way they pursued their professional life. But one thing they all had in common was being told more than once in, in interviewing for early jobs. I'm, I'm sorry, we just we don't have facilities for women here. And, and that's not something that occurs, at least blatantly today. Although, you know, um, I have read that our own vice president in, in interviews has said that he is not comfortable uh, dining even professionally with a colleague, a female colleague, al- alone. 
um, but has to have someone else with him. And, and that's, of course, not nearly that same sort of explicit barrier, and I don't, I don't mean to suggest it is, but it, it is similar in the sense that it means a female professional might be excluded from an opportunity to, um, you know, engage in professional life that um, her, her male colleagues are, aren't facing. And, and so now I think there are more subtle ways that the same pressures that, and, and barriers that were so obvious for these early, early women, they still remain. And, and the question is now, and it's part of what we try to grapple with at the conclusion of Shortlist, is are there lessons we can learn from the way these early women entered professional life that are relevant today for helping us address and remedy the fact that, you know, women enter the professional world in numbers relatively equal to men. You know, in, in law, that's my discipline, law schools have been admitting classes that women are equal in number and often greater in number than men. But this has been happening for decades, and we aren't seeing that same sort of equality continue into positions of leadership and power. And we think part uh, of that are these sort of subtle but Still existing structural barriers that that hold women and minorities, and in particular minority women, back. And and um, is there? And now I know you cite um, examples of of a number of different women who have been shortlisted uh, throughout the history of uh, the Supreme Court. But you also talk about an African American woman, the first African American woman to be considered. Yeah, so that's uh, Judge Amaya Kearse. And when, when we, we set out to figure out how many women had been shortlisted <clears throat> before O'Connor, we had no idea what we would find. As it turns out, there were, there were nine. Only one of the nine is a minority female, and that is, as you have said, uh, Judge Kearse. She's now on the, the Second Circuit Federal Court of Appeals. And her, her story and how, how she ends up there, I think, is uh, an important point to note. So President Carter never had an opportunity to put anyone on the Supreme Court. There wasn't a vacancy during his term. I think that he would have been the first to put a woman on the Supreme Court if he'd actually had a chance to do so. So he would have had a woman on the Supreme Court potentially in the 1970s. But here's what he did do. When he um, came into office, he realized that something needed to be done because there were not um, women and minorities in the federal judiciary in the way he thought that um, they, they should be given um, their entry into professional life and their credentials and their uh, ability to do the work. And so he, he created a structural change. He issued an executive order, established judicial commissions around the country. Each commission was itself diverse in makeup. So the decision-making body included women and minorities. They were charged with finding qualified candidates who were also women and minorities, and all candidates who came through were asked questions about their commitment to diversity. And through that process, Carter put more women and minorities on federal courts, the lower courts, than any other president before him combined. On one of those commissions, uh, Amalia Kearse, then a lawyer for a Manhattan law firm, was asked to join it. And she goes from being on the commission, who's helping vet candidates, to eventually becoming one of those candidates who was vetted and, in fact, appointed. And but for Carter's structural change in this in the selection process i i don't think that we would have seen a female minority on on the shortlist at all before o'connor 
And so I, I think that's a really powerful story. Now, maybe not all of us um, can be presidents issuing executive orders, but anyone who's in the role of deciding who is going to be interviewed and considered for a position, and then importantly, who's selected for the position, can be mindful about that selection process in a similar way. Yeah, because it certainly made the selection pool for the Supreme Court bigger. And I I don't think we would have seen uh, a a Justice Sotomayor without it. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Uh, You know, and of course, we still have not seen a female African-American Supreme Court justice. That that may change um, because presidential candidate Joe Biden has um, made one of his public campaign promises that he will put uh, an African-American female on the court. I think that would be wonderful. There are certainly many, many qualified candidates that he could choose from. He, he could have a very long short list and still fulfill that, that, that campaign promise. And I, I guess I, I hope that, um, if he's in a position of, um, being in that role, if he's elected, that he doesn't just uh, fulfill these particular campaign promises sort of the way Reagan did, but that he opens up consideration to qualified women, minorities, female minorities, uh, for, for all positions within the administration. Are are the people on the short list um, typically qualified? Yeah, they are, Um, at least in the case of of these women. So now, uh, uh, in my research, um, we did not go extensively into the backgrounds of of every man who appeared on a president's short list. But I can tell you, with respect to this, this cohort of nine women, all of them were more than qualified. Uh, and it's not just me saying that. So um, to go back to the example of Nixon, for example, his White House counsel years later uh, wrote a book and reflected on that decision-making process for who would go on the shortlist and who would come off. And he said that he took Mildred Lilly's resume and held it uh, up next to Sandra Day O'Connor's. And Judge Lilly was as qualified, if not more so, than Sandra Day O'Connor and absolutely um, would have been qualified for the court. I, um, you know, I, I don't know that every every time a president puts together a shortlist that everyone would agree that everyone on that shortlist is qualified. I don't know if there's uniform agreement in terms of uh, what constitutes being qualified, but I can tell you, in the case of these nine women, they were repeatedly vetted and re- repeatedly shortlisted and selected for positions, whether on courts or Carla Hills was selected to be the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. And so that's also a signal. Lots of other bodies felt that these women were qualified for very significant leadership roles. And so there's no reason why they wouldn't have been qualified for the U.S. Supreme Court. Are the shortlists, when they're compiled, ranked? And if they are, are they ranked by by qualification or by confirmability? Oh, well, so this is such a great question. And it, it's very, it, it, you know, it, it varies with every president. You know, part of what was so interesting about this project, you know, as I, I mentioned, you know, President Trump has his shortlist publicly available, like, on the White House website. But the presidents in the past, Nixon was probably the most public. You know, he would disclose his shortlist to the media. But some presidents, in order to find their shortlist, I've spent many hours digging through files and presidential archives and, and in that process would, you know, see handwritten notes about the different things that, that presidents and their advisors were considering. And sometimes it was geography, like maybe we need, you know, 
a nominee from the West Coast, and often it was age. So um, a really interesting memo that was put together when Reagan was considering his shortlist had a list of women's names and um, their credentials, and that was typed up. But then someone had gone through in the margins and noted their ages and, um, you know, for, for one of the, the women, she was considered so old, they didn't even bother calculating her age. It was like, you know, just an, an automatic, like, you know, cross-off, we're not going to consider her. And so there are, uh, I think, lots of different ways that once the shortlist is created, there is um, a, an informal or formal ranking system that, it, that, that happens. And part of it goes to your point about confirmability, like, what's this process going to be like? Uh, and part of it goes to things like, you know, will this justice serve in that role for a long time based on his or her age? You know, there's, um, I, I just, I, I had a, I had a question and then I read another question in my notes and I lost my train of thought. Um, oh, I know what it was. It's kind of a chicken in the egg question. Uh, you know, you, we talked briefly about the idea of had there been a woman on the Supreme Court earlier that it may have um, expedited the nation's progress towards gender equality. But was the progress being made toward gender equality what put women on the Supreme Court? In other words... Which has the bigger impact, the Supreme Court on on societal change or societal change on the Supreme Court? Yeah, so I think it's a mix of both, to be sure. But I and you know, not just in terms of who sits on the court, but often this is a question that, as um, law scholars, we will ask. You know, does the Supreme Court really ultimately move the country forward, or do do the decisions that it make really just reflect where the country has already, you know, arrived or come to? Especially when we think about expanding uh, rights to to individuals and that sort of thing, individual rights. I I will say this though, uh, I, you know, I've read so much of the media coverage when Sandra Day O'Connor was uh, confirmed for the Supreme Court, and it was such a watershed moment. And it's hard, I mean, to your point, you know, you sort of forget that women were excluded from, you know, all-male luncheon clubs. And, it, and we sometimes, I think, it, it, we, we take for granted where we are now, and it's hard to remember, like, what huge deal that was and inspired, you know, whole generations of women to pursue professional life in a way that I... I don't know that they had contemplated before her. And so if we'd had that same moment back in the 1930s, I, I have to think that certainly would have sped things uh, up for the progress that uh, still remains to be done with respect to gender equality in this country. From the visibility alone or because of case law? Oh, well, that's interesting. So I think... Um, Definitely the visibility alone. I mean, I, I could be more confident in that. And the case law, um, that, that's harder to say and harder to know for sure. I'm often asked, you know, if you care about women's rights in a progressive way, wouldn't it be better to have a feminist male judge on the bench than a conservative female judge? And I, I, from, from my perspective, I, I think that men have had, you know, 
every political, social, moral perspective under the sun represented on the U.S. Supreme Court over time. Because so many men have served from all different walks of life, different um, political appointments and, and the like. And women should have that same uh, diversity in terms of having different viewpoints on things. It's certainly true of the women in this study of shortlisted. I mean, some of the women supported the Equal Rights Amendment. Some of them campaigned actively against it. You know, would we have seen different cases or different outcomes if women had been on the court in the 1930s? Again, we can't know for sure, but we can also look to what women who serve on the court have said. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in a case involving a teenage girl who had uh, had to undergo a strip search because uh, she had um, ibuprofen on her at school, um, she, she talked about how in discussing that with her male colleagues, she pointed out the particular vulnerabilities for a woman at that age that they might not have appreciated. Now, um, and the court found for, for the young girl, I don't, I don't know that the court wouldn't have if she hadn't been there, but I do know that she disclosed that she shared her perspective. And I think that that matters too. But, but for me, the, the larger point in all of this is to say seeing a woman in that role would have inspired, um, other women to pursue professional life and also importantly normalize women in the workplace for men who might otherwise be uncomfortable. So, you know, the, the judges who were uncomfortable having a woman on, on the court when Nixon was thinking about, you know, maybe appointing one uh, or when Florence Allen joined the sixth circuit and, you know, didn't have a bathroom available to her. The men excluded her from lunch. They, were appalled by the news of her presence and, you know, reportedly some of them had to take to bed because they fell ill in the newspaper. Um, seeing a woman in a professional role, I think, would have prepared the workplace in general for women. And so I, the visibility piece is a really important one. More about women in the shadows of the Supreme Court from the book Shortlisted by author Renee Kanake Jefferson is straight ahead. <music> Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? Mm. It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor 
She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. Is a major factor in dancing like a retard. May cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. 
alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! From the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More about women in the shadows of the Supreme Court from the book shortlisted by author Renee Kanake Jefferson is straight ahead. And, and on the subject of visibility, it all of the women that serve currently on the Supreme Court were nominated to those positions by Democratic presidents and tend to vote um, with an increasingly uh, divided court on the left side of the aisle, um, which which sort of does that give the impression that women, by and large, are liberal? Well, so I think, um, and this is why it's so important to tell and understand these stories and these histories, because I think there's a bit of a misperception here that, I mean, I, I suppose compared to their colleagues on the court, they um, would be more quote-unquote liberal. But Justice Sotomayor began her judicial career being appointed to a lower federal court by a Republican president, George Bush. So it is true that Obama then elevated her to the U.S. Supreme Court, but I don't know that we can necessarily cast her as, you know, just, you know, an, an Obama nominee because she was vetted and selected initially for the federal judiciary by a Republican judge. And, and actually, I'll tell you, that's true for a number of the women in our short, shortlisted cohort. Um, often they would be appointed initially to a lower federal court by a president of one political party and then appointed to a higher court or considered for a Supreme Court shortlist by a president from a different political party. I, I, to me, that's a real compliment to their skill and ability to be a fair judge, that you can set aside politics or people from both, you know, you know, opposite sides of the aisle can agree the person's qualified, right? Um, I, I, but I do, I do get your point uh, that at least right now, the way the court is presently comprised, it certainly is perceived that the women are more liberal. But I, I, I think it's also important, uh, and it's, it's part of why we wrote this book. So part of the book tells the story of women who were shortlisted, but we also cover women who make it off the shortlist and, and were nominated. So that includes the four women who have served on the court we're talking about, and then also uh, Harriet Myers, who, of course, was nominated by President Bush, and her candidacy did not go forward. And and that gets back to the the issue of confirmability, and and timing to a certain degree. What role does timing play in you know the the compilation of these short lists lists for the individuals on it? So I think well you know timing plays a huge role because you have to have a vacancy first of all you know that's that sort of goes well, to Carter's yeah. point if you know if Carter had four vacancies we would have had four women on the court maybe I, I don't know that, that might be overstating it but we certainly would have had <laughs> one on, on the court sooner um, and, and it's, it's timing and confirmability and you know it's interesting so if you take the case of um, Harriet Myers um, you know who withdrew her nomination because there were concerns about her confirmability. 
we don't know if she would have been confirmed or not. She certainly was qualified, even though I don't think that's the way the media portrayed her candidacy at all. Um, and this is, I think, an example that um, women can relate to in, in any professional roles, and not just talking about the Supreme Court, but we can use it as an example. So Harriet Myers was critiqued, and in fact, there was an op-ed penned where she was sort of made fun of because one of her credentials was that she had served, and not for just one, but uh, two presidencies of, of bar associations. So the Dallas Bar Association and, and then president of the uh, state of Texas Bar Association. Well, when, when Nixon nominated Justice Powell, in his speech announcing it, he was heralding this incredible credential that Powell had served as the president of the American Bar Association. So here we have what's an attribute and an asset that's being championed for one candidate being neutral at best and maybe even something that um, is a negative for, for the female candidate. And that is um, certainly uh, a phenomenon that that happens uh, not just with respect to the Supreme Court. I, I'm going to try to pile up a couple, three questions here. Is the short list always made public? And is it a positive, does it have a positive or a negative impact on uh, a short listee's uh, career and, and future uh, pursuits? Oh, yeah, sure. It's a great question. Um, so the shortlist is not always necessarily made public. I mean, of course, what, what ultimately is made public is when the president announced the ultimate nominee. To the extent the shortlist is made public, you know, what, what's that impact on someone's career? Well, uh, you know, it's hard to say, at least in the case of these, these women, they were all sufficiently prominent that they didn't necessarily need, you know, more publicity about, about their roles. And I, I will say this, um, it definitely impacted the women differently. So one woman, Susie Sharp, she was the first female to sit on the North Carolina Supreme Court and the first female elected as a chief judge of any state Supreme Court. She said of um, repeated considerations that she felt like the old Listerine ad, off the bridesmaid, never the bride. And she was a little <laughs> bit cynical and jaded about the experience. Um, and I can say, you know, to go back to Cornelia Kennedy, um, so a, a Michigan judge who then ends up on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, she came the closest of anyone. It was down to her and Sandra Day O'Connor. And she reflected in an interview afterwards, like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm happy there's a woman, but, you know, I, I, I would have been even happier if it was me. And I, I have to imagine that that's how uh, any of the women felt. Uh, Joan Dempsey Klein, who also was on that shortlist with O'Connor and Kennedy for Reagan's nomination, she was a judge from California. I, I, again, had had to have just a real mix of emotions, but the way she channeled hers when she realized she was not going to be selected was to turn around and champion Sandra Day O'Connor. So she actually testified at her Supreme Court confirmation hearings. And that's one of the lessons we draw uh, from the lives of these women is um, sometimes in order to be selected, you have to collaborate to compete, uh, even if it means that you won't necessarily be the one. And Joan Dempsey-Klein certainly embodied that spirit in being willing to speak on behalf of Sandra Day O'Connor after she herself had come so very close to the nomination. I, I uh, 
I feel like we could talk about this for hours, Renee. I'm really enjoying this conversation, but we I, we have oh, to wrap it up. You. And I always give guests an opportunity to let people know where they can find out more. If you have a website, um, obviously the book is a great place to start. Shortlisted Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court by Renee Kanaki uh, Jefferson and uh, Hannah Brenner Johnson. Um, but do you have a website, and, and what's next for you? Uh, so we do have a website. It's very easy to find, shortlistedbook.com, and it has uh, photos of all of the women, quotes from them, and more about the book. So it's, it's fun. There's some interactive things. So definitely, um, if, if, if people are intrigued, shortlistedbook.com is a good place to go. And as for what's next, um, right now it's spending more time talking about this book and, 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 and sharing it with, with others and thinking about how we can apply the lessons that we've learned from writing it to where we go next in, in current events. And so that's, that's part of what's next. And I think um, the other part of what's next is, like, like all of us, figuring out how we're going to navigate uh, our lives in this new normal uh, of, of coronavirus. I really appreciate you taking the time to let me share something about the book amidst all of that. Well, it was uh, it was my honor and privilege. And did I see also that you're a uh, member of the Michigan State University uh, Board of Directors? Uh, the Board of Trustees, I am. That's correct. Uh, I was appointed to the board last December by Governor Gretchen Whitmer to fill the end of a term um, after another trustee stepped down. Interesting time to be there. Yes, we'll save yes, we'll absolutely. save that we'll save that for another conversation, Renee. Oh well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for uh, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks for making the time. Take care. That was uh, Renee Kanake Johnson, or Jefferson rather, author of Shortlisted Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. <laughs> For a while, so I'll be staying here inside. It's too dangerous out in the world. I'll see you on the other side. But when I'm in my quarantine, in my little place too high, my heart is aching and I'm missing you. I'll see you on the other side. I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side 
other side And I'll meet you with arms open wide See you on the other side The Tom Sumner Program.com. Hi, I'm Alexander Zonjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 